We return this morning to our series on the Sermon on the Mount, from which we took a brief break for Ascension, Pentecost, and Trinity Sundays. But back in the sermon previously, we saw last how Jesus dealt with the root of murder in human anger and human speech, so that thou shalt not kill entails thou shalt not be unjustly angry or speak in a dehumanizing way about your brother or sister. This morning, in the next section of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus moves from the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, to the seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we'll make two points, they're there on the outline in your bulletin, the teaching and the remedy, the teaching and the remedy. First then, the teaching. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He cites the seventh commandment. And then, as throughout, he says, but I say to you, or but I tell you. Again, just by way of reminder, this is his way of saying, as the Messiah, as the fulfiller of the law, I determine its end. I determine its full context and extent, and I determine how it's applied. And he's not disagreeing, at least here, he's not disagreeing with the you have heard it said part. There are places where he will take some issues with that, but not here. I mean, how could he be? It's you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Straight from the Torah. Adultery was quite rare among the Jews of Jesus' time. So many would have thought, well, I'm pretty good with that one. And it appears that Jesus is addressing a situation where many have a a narrow definition of sin. Just don't commit adultery. And thus they have a broad and an overly generous definition of their own purity. I keep the commandment. I'm a good person. We are, of course, to be hard on ourselves and gentle with others. But the Pharisees and religious people tend to reverse this, where we're incredibly mild and generous on ourselves and narrow and harsh with other people. So Jesus wants us to see That this command entails more, in fact, as we'll see, much more than simply not committing adultery. And this is not new teaching. But he obviously feels the need to press it home in quite a pointed and sharp way. You can find this teaching in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. We heard it in the Proverbs reading, our Old Testament lesson this morning. The connection between lust and adultery. It's built right into the warp and woof of the Torah, right? The Tenth Commandment forbids even the coveting of your neighbor's wife. So Jesus wants us to see the commands are not merely external, but they radically deal with what leads to adultery. And radical is the right word here, right? Radical, the word radical means to go to the root, having to do with the root, And Jesus is ruthlessly radical here. And in the light of this teaching, there will be nobody congratulating themselves 
for not transgressing the outward commandment. This is teaching that will leave none of us unscathed. No one will be standing upright and unharmed. So he says, But I say to you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, that changes the register of the conversation. Now, he's not literally equating adultery with lust, as if we could make no distinctions. But he is driving the holiness of the law. He's driving it deep down into the marrow of our souls. He's probing, testing, searching. He's deepening the seventh commandment in terms of the tenth. Not merely the act of adultery, though that is of course forbidden, but he's placing his focus on the interior coveting. It's in the secret recesses, the hidden recesses of the person that Jesus places his divine finger in this text. And it's not looking per se, but looking, the text says, lustfully. The idea is one of a sustained gaze. That sort of objectifying second glance. A deliberate harboring, nurturing, and coddling of desire. That is what Jesus condemns. And he condemns it because it's the very opposite of the love which seeks the good of the other person. It's a form of self-indulgence which reduces the other, as one commentator put it, to a visual prostitute. So now, the senses, right? Uh, Visual delight, the human imagination. These are wonderful gifts given to us by God and his bounty to be used wholesomely. The sanctified imagination is beautiful and fruitful and life-giving. But we are fallen creatures. And here you can see something of our plight. The fall has corrupted our senses. The organs by which we interact with the world itself and our desires. Notice this in the text. The heart is not where Jesus directly focuses. The eyes are the gateway to the heart. So his concern is with our eyes. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he will say this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Obviously, this applies to more than just sexual morality, although that's what he's focusing on here. If your eye is unhealthy, he says, your whole body will be full of darkness. It's extraordinary power that's lodged in what you do with your eye. His point, of course, is that the heart, the inner person, is controlled by the eyes. The eyes of the heart, if you will, can have their field of vision either clarified or distorted by the eyes of your flesh, your physical eyes. These are like lamps which either light up or darken your inner person, your soul. Now, this is a simple enough point, but note, it's a bit counterintuitive. I think it's a bit different 
than the way we might normally look at things. We would, I submit, tend to want to move from the heart out to the eyes. But Jesus does the reverse here. I mean, doesn't Proverbs chapter 3 say, watch over your heart with all diligence because out of the heart flow the issues of life? I mean, doesn't Jesus himself say, out of the heart, murder and adultery flow? Yes, of course, this is all very true. If you keep your heart pure, your eyes will follow. But Jesus recognizes that this is not a complete picture of the human condition. Because we're embodied creatures, and because the fall has radically disordered our bodies as well as our souls, right? what we do with our bodily members now becomes profoundly important. There, there is virtually nothing in our minds. There's nothing in your imagination, your inner life, which does not enter through the senses. I mean, it's a contested philosophical point, but... If you go back to the 3rd century B.C., Aristotle said, there is nothing in the mind which is not first in the senses. The ear, the nose, and especially the eyes. These are portals. These are floodgates, and they impinge directly upon our souls. So here's the situation. Think of it as a kind of loop, a circle. The heart or the soul can control and direct the body. But the loop works profoundly in the other direction as well. What we do with our bodies or our eyes shapes and forms and directs our souls. This is why bodily posture and movements in the liturgy matter. So Jesus realizes this. And here he focuses on, if you will, the second part of the loop. The the part that runs from the body, from the eyes outward, back down into the soul. So he's aware here that our eyes are like they solicit our souls. Lust reaches into us through the portal of the eyes. That we are in some basic way sensing creatures. But here's the problem. As broken sensing creatures, sense easily becomes sensuality. Indeed, So primitive and basic is this problem that it goes back to the beginning. Human sin began with the eyes. When Eve, the text says, saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. Pleasant to the eyes. The problem goes back to the beginning. right? And Solomon is continually warning his sons in Proverbs. Don't lust in your heart after her beauty. Don't let her captivate you with her eyes. You know how Peter characterizes false teachers in the New Testament? He says they have eyes full of adultery. How much more important do you think this is in our highly visible, image-oriented, sensate age? right? Where the word is lost, where we're numb to, to speech almost where we're drowning in some optic sea. It's quite, a, it's quite an optic sea we're in. It's full of triviality, terrible things, and things that are truly lovely. So, 
The point is clear. Almost all adultery, all impurity starts with the eyes. And of all the senses, the eyes are a kind of coveting, desiring organ. Right? We see and we want. We usually don't have to stop and put an intermediate step in there, right? It's not like we see things and then say, oh, I saw that. Now I wonder how I should process it. There's no gap. The eyes are a coveting organ. We see and we immediately imagine possessing. In fact, sight is a kind of possession, right? I can enjoy immediately the exquisite design of that piano just by looking at it. I possess some joy just by seeing Sight has built into it this desire to possess. It is a form of possession. So sight itself, which is this exquisite gift from God, has now become a source of warfare, a battleground, a source of defilement for human creatures. And we do this by default, right? It's like a natural twitching mechanism. We do it instinctively. It's almost involuntary. That's why there's so much instability and jitter in our lives. A lot of it is precisely because our bodily senses are disordered in their relationship to God's good creation. And it's profoundly troublesome and ironic in one way because you who are destined for the beatific vision, notice that, there's a sight word, the beatific vision for looking upon the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ, with resurrected eyes, looking into him whose eyes are a flame of fire. Now you find yourself having to rigorously police the movements of your own disordered eyes. That's the teaching. So the second point begins in verse 29, where Jesus moves to the truly shocking remedy. If your right eye, let let me stop on the word if, if your right eye. The word if here means that the rule that Jesus is laying down is somewhat subjective. It will vary from person to person. Our Lord knows people are different. One person might not be able to see a certain movie without sinning. But that doesn't mean necessarily that no Christian could see the movie. One person might need to avoid a certain class of people which have no impact whatsoever on another person. Jesus doesn't really prescribe anything in detail here. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, then you need to heed these words. Let others deal with the question of if their right eye causes them to stumble. We would be tempted to prescribe something here, right? And overly aggressive moral teachers would say, okay, you have a problem with your eye, here's a set of rules. Just keep these 11 rules and you'll be good with your eyes. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, look, if your right eye causes you to stumble, then you're gonna, you deal with it. And the right eye, and later in the text, the right hand, in this world that meant the eye or the hand that was the leading hand, the authoritative hand, the, the, the better one, the more valuable or useful one. I hope it's clear that Jesus is not saying you can do whatever you want with your left eye or your left hand. He's just using the leading hand and eye. So if your right eye, your eye, which was given by God in all of its complex wonder, so that we would not stumble, right? Your eye is given so that you won't fall over things. You won't stumble in the dark. 
if that eye now causes you to stumble, that's a bad place to be. What can you do? Here's what Jesus says. Gouge it out and throw it away. Now, he's not advocating self-mutilation. The language is intentionally exaggerated. You know, it's, it's hyperbole. But he does mean take drastic measures. Make drastic sacrifices. Sever. Sever the appropriate relations and activities. Hate sin. Crush it. Gouge it out. Dig it out of your soul. He is commanding ruthless self-denial. Not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. Renounce. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body, the deeds of the eyes. Execute them. Slay them. How? By confessing and by living out and by reckoning what is true of your life in Christ. Namely, that in baptism you are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. This is not an esoteric thing. This is the heart of the Christian life. The Holy Spirit has sovereignly and supernaturally wrought faith in you, and that faith unites you to the risen and glorified and transcended Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And that union is your way to liberty. It's a call to make that union that you have with Jesus Christ work in the realm of your eyes. Nothing could get more practical than this. Be who you are as baptized into Christ's death. It's a beautiful thing. God wants us to reflect in the earth the ethical glory of Christ himself. We have been, the New Testament says this repeatedly, and it almost always says it in the past tense, crucified with Christ. We have been, past tense, died to the world, and the world has, past tense, been crucified to us. Thus, we might say that we are to live in this realm, this sensate realm, this realm of lust, as if we had no eyes for it, no hands for it, no feet for it. We are to live as spiritual amputees, as inwardly maimed, or in more explicitly biblical language, get this, as those who are circumcised of heart. Right? Those who've undergone some sort of deep interior cutting because they are crucified with Christ who is the circumcised one who was cut off at the cross. This is the deep healing medicine of the gospel for our everyday problems with our senses. Our radical disorder requires nothing less than the radical remedy of Christ crucified and our union with it. Now, sadly, there have been some in the history of the church, uh, most notably here the famous uh, third century biblical scholar Origen of Alexandria, who have uh, wrongfully taken this commandment literally. Origen castrated himself. He thought that's what Jesus meant here and when he spoke of becoming a eunuch for the kingdom of God in Matthew 19. I'm going to take one, um, one minute here to defend Origen on this. 
Because, you know, here's what happens, right? Origen takes it very seriously. We tend not to take it seriously enough. We see what Origen does, and we're like, oh, that guy's crazy. Pass me the remote. Right? So, in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, which, Lord willing, we'll get a chance to look at, I think it's next week, right, in Sermon on the Mount. And he, he says, look, you cannot put your wife away for any reason. If you marry a divorced woman, you're committing adultery. You're making her commit adultery. And the disciples say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no. Marriage is a wonderful thing. You should work through it. It's going to have some bumpy roads. But it's a t- tremendous blessing. And uh, No, of course, he doesn't say any of that stuff. Here's what he says. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Look, if you can be a eunuch, be a eunuch. You, I suggest you get this at no Christian marriage and family count, uh, conference in the country that you'd ever go to. Marriage is difficult, so remember, you always have before you the choice of becoming a eunuch, either by choice or by someone else's hand. And by the way, not all of you will be able to accept this, but if you can accept it, accept it. And Origen's taking that word seriously, right? We have the problem on the other side. Now, the Council of Nicaea, we know it for the creed that we'll confess in a a, a bit here, it rightly prohibited the practice. You you shouldn't take the text literally, origin. But you know what? For all the seriousness that origin took this desire for purity with, his example is instructive to us, right? Not simply because he read the verse too literally, but rather because his solution was not radical enough. Right? It was not radical enough. For one can certainly be a eunuch and still have a serious problem with lust. Because the loop that we spoke about earlier works in both directions. From the eyes in and from the mind out. And you cannot castrate the mind's eye. So the radical solution then, the one that gets to the root, is not physical mutilation, but union with the mutilated one. Right? Not physical mutilation, but union with the one who was physically mutilated. There we become dead and blind and spiritually maimed and eyeless to the seductions of the world. There and there alone is the power To make the eyes, the lamp of the body, a source of light and not darkness. You remember that? It's it's been a long time for me, but I still remember the little children's song. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above, you know the song, right? Is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's fine. But it's moralistic. And worse than that, it's bloodless. And the blood that is missing is the blood of the cross. Little eyes and bigger people's eyes, it turns out, need to be gouged out by the holy violence of the cross. 
But that's a tough song to sing with the four-year-olds at VBS, right? They need to be dealt with by that holy violence. That is what the Father up above has provided for your little eyes in his Son. Jesus then expands on this command as if this is not enough. He gives us the rationale for his teaching here. He says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He's something of a fire and brimstone preacher here, Jesus. And notice, while this can sound extreme, his point is pastoral. Sin's reward is death, hell, separation from God. All sin, if it runs its course, ends in destruction. At its root, sin is a choice for hell. It despises the holy presence of God. So these issues, right, of great moment, of great gravity, of great weight, are being worked out in our daily and hourly choices, in the little movements of the eyes. Lust itself, Scripture tells us, is a fire. It leaves people tormented and unfulfilled. In fact, a good definition of hell would be some state of perpetual, tormented, unfulfilled lust. It mangles lives. And like all sin, it's a kind of hell in advance of hell. And so it's important to get this if you think, oh wow, this is going to make my life miserable trying to do this. This is going to make your life wonderful. Jesus wants your well-being, your liberation, your wholeness. That's why he teaches the way he teaches. That's why he's so sharp and uncompromising. Notice what he says here. It is better for you to be spiritually maimed than for your whole body with all your members to be thrown into hell. So hell, Jesus himself speaks of it six times in the Gospels. He uses hell, get this, This is somewhat un-Presbyterian of him. He uses hell as a motivation to to purity, for behavior modification. And if that seems too crude or beneath us, then we're going to have to take it up with him. But here, he fights fire with fire. He fights the fire of lust with the fire of hell. He makes the same point again where he substitutes, in verse 30, where he substitutes the hand for the eye. And later, in chapter 18, he makes the point again where he changes the metaphor to the foot. Cut your foot off. So it's not just what you see, or what you do, or where you go. They all must be circumcised by the cross. They all must be cut off. Apparently, Jesus really liked this form of teaching. It's present three times in Matthew's Gospel. You know, this idea of cutting a member off. And that's because in his love, he knows you and I need this kind of ruthlessness because we will tend to coddle ourselves and be harsh on other people. The beauty of Jesus' teaching is, is twofold, really, right? He takes the problem with utmost seriousness and he takes the depth of the solution with utmost seriousness, right? We tend to miscalculate on both fronts. We don't see the problem with our senses and our sin correctly, and we don't see the cost of the solution properly. No one but our Lord takes the measure of what it is we are up against seriously. So be radical. 
act drastically with your body. In Paul's terms, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That means, Paul says there, flee immorality. Even its first seeds, it is not to be negotiated with. It is to be killed. The great uh, Puritan, John Owen, used to say, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. It doesn't matter what your sins may be. They may not be this particular problem. Be killing it, or it will be killing you. So when we listen to this text, and we listen to it honestly, it should create in us a deep spirit of poverty. We should cry out with the hymn writer, One thing I of the Lord desire, for all my way has darksome been. Be it by earthquake, wind, or fire, Lord, make me clean, make me clean. So who sits unscathed? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who's going to ascend into the glory throne room of God, into the hill of the Lord to worship? One. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ, whose purity covers our impurity. And this is why we must flee to him perpetually, cling to him, cleave to him, cherish his obedience above all. Our desire becomes disordered. When the triune God in Jesus Christ is not our sole chief love, our supreme good, the one we are ravished with, Right, Paul says, notice this sight word, beholding the glory of God, we are transformed into his image. So if you have a problem with your eyes, the remedy is to start beholding the right things, starting with the glory of God. Right? Union, then, with this one, in his death and resurrection, brings forth Wholesome desires mortifies all of our disordered desires. There is a kind of gazing which leads to glory. And that's what we're to inculcate, to develop, to cultivate. What we have in this text, then, is a kind of issue of religious infidelity, of idolatry. Which is why the prophets would often accuse Israel of spiritual adultery when she went after other gods. This kind of lust, like all sin, is a God substitute. This is what we do. And the remedy is substituting God himself for our God substitutes. Maybe this is not your problem. But I guarantee you have an array of other problems. As John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. The remedy, in all cases, is substituting God himself for our God substitutes. Now, you may think these things in my life are not God's substitutes. I, believe me, under the hand of a good counselor, you can see that they are. There are only two things that can satisfy you in life, right? The creator or some facet of the creature. And we're always choosing the latter. So be radical. And there's nothing more radical and drastic, nothing more health-giving, it turns out, And this is the paradox and the mystery of Christianity. There is nothing more health-giving 
than continual union with the gouged, mutilated, circumcised one. Right? The one in whom we ascend, and only in whom we ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and pure hearts. Amen. Amen.